The following sermon was prepared for the morning exercises at Cripplegate by Richard Baxter, and it is called The Cure of Melancholy and Overmuch Sorrow by Faith. Question. What are the best preservatives against melancholy and overmuch sorrow? That sorrow, even for sin, may be overmuch, number one. That overmuch sorrow swallows one up, number two. And number three, therefore it must be resisted and assuaged by necessary comfort, both by others and by ourselves. In handling these, I shall observe this order. I shall show you when sorrow is overmuch. How overmuch sorrow swallows a man up. What are the causes of it? And what is the cure? First, it is too notorious that overmuch sorrow for sin is not the ordinary case of the world. A stupish, blockish disposition is a common cause of men's perdition. The plague of a hard heart and seared conscience keeps most from all due sense of sin or danger or misery, and of all the great and everlasting concerns of their guilty souls. A dead sleep in sin deprives most of the use of sense and understanding. They do some of the outward acts of religion as in a dream. They are vowed to God in baptism by others, and they profess to stand to it themselves. They go to church and say over the words of the creed and the Lord's Prayer and Commandments, they receive the Lord's Supper, and all is in a dream. But when is sorrow overmuch? Number one, sorrow is overmuch when it is fed by a mistaken cause. All is too much where none is due, and great sorrow is too much when the cause requires less. If a man thinks that somewhat is a duty which is no duty, and then sorrows for omitting it, such sorrow is all too much because it is undue and caused by error. Many I have known who have been greatly troubled because they could not bring themselves to that length or order of meditation for which they had neither ability nor time, and many because they could not reprove sin in others when prudent instruction and intimation was more suitable than reproof. And many are troubled because in their shops and callings they think of anything but God, as if our outward business must have no thoughts. Number two, sorrow is overmuch when it hurts and overwhelms nature itself. It destroys bodily health or understanding. Grace is a due qualification of nature, and duty is the right employment of it but neither of them must destroy it. A civil and ecclesiastic and domestic government are for edification and not for destruction. So also is personal self-government. God will have mercy and not sacrifice, and he that would not have us kill or hurt our neighbor, on pretense of religion, would not have us to destroy or hurt ourselves, being bound to love our neighbors, but as ourselves, as fasting is a duty no further than it tends to some good, as to express or exercise true humiliation, or to mortify some fleshly lust, and so on, so is it with sorrow for sin. It is too much when it does more hurt than good. How overmuch sorrow swallows us up. When sorrow swallows up the sinner, it is overmuch, and to be restrained as first, 
the passions of grief and trouble of mind, oft overthrow the sober and sound use of reason, so that a man's judgment is corrupted and perverted by it, and is not in that case to be trusted. As a man in raging anger, so one in fear or great trouble of mind thinks not of things as they are, but as his passion represents them about God and religion, and about his own soul and his actions, or about his friends or enemies, his judgment is perverted, and usually false, and like an inflamed eye thinks all things of the color, which is like itself. When it perverts reason, it is overmuch. Number two, overmuch sorrow disables a man to govern his thoughts, and ungoverned thoughts needs be both sinful and very troublesome, Grief carries him a torrent. You may almost as easily keep the leaves of trees in quietness and order in a blustering wind as the thoughts of one in troubling passions. If reason would stop them from perplexing subjects or turn them to better and sweeter things, it cannot do it. It has no power against the stream of troubling passions. Overmuch sorrow would swallow up faith itself and greatly hinder its exercise. They are manners of unspeakable joy which the gospel calls us to believe, and it is wonderfully hard for a grieved, troubled soul to believe anything that is matter of joy, much less a so great joy as pardon and salvation are. Though it dare not flatly give God the lie, it hardly believes his free and full promises. Any expressions of its readiness to receive all penitent returning sinners. Passionate grief serves to feel somewhat contrary to the grace and promises of the gospel, and that feeling hinders faith. Overmuch sorrow, yet more hinders hope, when men think that they do believe God's word, and that his promises are all true to others, yet cannot hope for the promised blessings to themselves. Hope is that grace by which a soul that believes the gospel to be true comfortably expects that the benefits promised shall be its own. It is an applying act. The first act of faith, says the gospel, is true, which promises grace and glory through Christ. The next act of faith says, I will trust my soul and all upon it, and take Christ for my Savior and help. And then hope says, I hope for the salvation by him. But melancholy, overwhelming sorrow and trouble is as great an adversary to this hope as water is to fire or snow to heat. Despair is its very pulse and breath. Fain such would have hope, but they cannot. All their thoughts are suspicious and misgiving, and they can see nothing but danger and misery in a helpless state. And when hope, which is the anchor of the soul, is gone, what wonder if they be continually tossed with the storms. Overmuch sorrow swallows up all comfortable sense of the infinite goodness and love of God, and by this hinders the soul from loving him, and in this it is an adversary to the very life of holiness. It is exceedingly hard for such a troubled soul to apprehend the goodness of God at all, but much harder to judge that he is good and amiable to him. But as a man that in the deserts of Libya is scorched with the violent heat of the sun, and is ready to die with drought and faintness, 
He may confess that the sun is the life of the earth and a blessing to mankind, but it is misery and death to him. Even so, these souls, overwhelmed with grief, may say that God is good to others, but he seems an enemy to them and to seek their destruction. They think he hates them and has forsaken them. And how can they love such a God who they think hates them and resolves to damn them and has decreed them to it from all eternity and brought them into the world for no other end? They that can hardly love an enemy does but defame them or oppress and wrong them, and they will hardly more love a God that they believe will damn them and hath remedilessly appointed them to it. And so it follows that this distemper is a false and injurious judge of all the word and works of God and of all his mercies and corrections. Whatever such a one reads or hears, he thinks it all makes against him. Every sad word and threatening in scripture he thinks means him, as if it named him. But the promises and comforts he has no part in, as if he had been by name accepted. All God's mercies are extenuated and taken for no mercies, as if God intended them all, but to make his sin the greater, and to increase his heavy reckoning and further his damnation. He thinks God does but sugar over poison to him, and give him all in hatred, and not in any love, with a design to sink him the deeper into hell. And if God corrects him, he supposes that it is but the beginning of his misery, and God torments him before the time. And so by this you see that it is an enemy to thankfulness. It rather reproaches God for his mercies as if they were injuries, than gives him any hearty thanks. And by this you may see that this distemper is quite contrary to the joy in the Holy Ghost, yea, in the peace in which God's kingdom consists. Nothing seems joyful to such distressed souls. Delighting in God and in his word and ways is the flower and life of true religion. But these I speak of can delight in nothing, neither in God, nor in his word, nor in any duty. They do it as a sick man eats his food, for mere necessity, and with some loathing and averseness. All this shows us that this disease is much contrary to the very prevailing course of the gospel. Christ came as a deliverer of the captives, a savior to reconcile us to God, and bring us glad tidings of parting and everlasting joy. Where the gospel was received, it was great rejoicing, and so proclaimed by angels and by men. But all that Christ has done and purchased and offered and promised seems nothing but manner of doubt and sadness to this disease. It is a distemper which greatly advantages Satan to cast in blasphemous thoughts of God, as if he were bad, and a hater and destroyer even of such as fain would please him. The design of the devil is to describe God to us as like himself, a malicious enemy who delights to do hurt. And if all men hate the devil for his hurtfulness, would he not draw men to hate and blaspheme God if he could, if he could make them believe that he is more hurtful? The worshiping of God 
is represented by an image is odious to him, because it seems to make him like such a creature as that image represents. How much more blasphemous is it to feign him to be like the malicious devil's diminutive, low thoughts of its goodness, as well as of its greatness, is a sin which greatly injures God, as if you should think that he is no better or trustier than a father or a friend, much more to think him such as distempered souls imagine him. You would wrong his pastors if you should describe them as Christ does the false prophets, as hurtful thorns and thistles and wolves. And is it not worse to think far worse than this of God? Disover much sorrow unfits men for all profitable meditation. It confounds their thoughts and turns them to hurtful distractions and temptations. And the more they muse, the more they are overwhelmed. And it turns prayer into mere complaint instead of childlike believing supplications. It quite undisposes a soul to God's feeding and especially to a comfortable sacramental communion and fetches great terror from it, lest unworthy receiving will but hasten and increase their damnation. And it renders preaching and counsel too oft unprofitable. Say what you will, that is never so convincing. Either it does not change them or is presently lost. And it is a distemper which makes all sufferings more heavy as facing upon a poor to the soul and having no comfort to set against it. And it makes death exceedingly terrible because they think it will be the gate of hell so that life seems burdensome to them and death terrible. They are weary of living and afraid of dying. Thus overmuch sorrow swallows up what are the causes and cures of melancholy? Answer. With very many, there is a great part of the cause of distemper, weakness, and diseasedness of the body, and by it the soul is greatly disabled to any comfortable sense. But the more it arises from such natural necessity, it is the less sinful and less dangerous to the soul, but never the less troublesome, but the more. Three diseases cause overmuch sorrow first. Those that consist in such violent pain as natural strength is unable to bear. But this being usually not very long, it is not now to be chiefly spoken of. A national passionateness and weakness of that reason that should quiet passion. It is too frequent a case with aged persons that are much debilitated to be very apt to offend and children cannot choose but cry when they are hurt. But it is most troublesome and hurtful to many women, and some men, who are so easily troubled and hardly quieted that they have very little power on themselves. Even many who fear God and who have very sound understandings and quick wits have almost no power against troubling passions, anger, and grief, but especially fear than they have of any other person's. The very natural temper is a strong disease of troubling, sorrow, fear, and displeasedness. They that are not melancholy are yet of so childish and sick and impatient a temper that one thing or other is still either discontenting, grieving, or affrighting them. They are like an aspen leaf, still shaken with the least motion of the air. The wisest and most patient man cannot please and justify such an one. 
A word, yea, or a look offends them. Every sad story or news or noise affrights them. And his children must have all that they cry for before they will be quiet. So is it with too many such. The case is very sad to those about them, but much more to themselves. To dwell with the sick in the house of mourning is less uncomfortable, but yet while reason is not overthrown, the case is not remediless nor wholly excusable. Number three. But when the brain and imagination are impaired, and reason partly overthrown by the disease called melancholy, this makes a cure yet more difficult. For commonly it is the foresaid persons whose natural temper is timorous and passionate, and apt to discontent and grief, who fall into infirmity and melancholy, and the conjunction of both the natural temper and the disease increases the misery. The signs of such diseasing melancholy I have often elsewhere described is one, the trouble and disquiet of the mind does then become a settled habit. They can see nothing but matter of fear and trouble. All that they hear feeds it. Danger is still before their eyes. All that they read and hear makes against them. They can delight in nothing. Fearful dreams trouble them when they sleep and distracted thoughts keep them long waking. It offends them to see another laugh or be merry. They think that every beggar's case is happier than theirs. They will hardly believe that anyone else is in their case. When some two or three in a single week or a day come to me in the same case, so like that you would think it were the same person's case which they all express, they have no pleasure in relations, friends, or estate or anything, they think that God has forsaken them, and that the day of grace is past, and there is no more hope. They say they cannot pray, but howl and groan, and God will not hear them. They will not believe that they have any sincerity in grace. They say they cannot repent, they cannot believe, but that their hearts are utterly hardened. Usually they are afraid lest they have committed the unpardonable sin against the Holy Ghost. In a word, fears and troubles and almost despair are the constant temper of their minds. If you convince them that they have some evidences of sincerity and that their fears are causeless and injurious to themselves and to God, and they have nothing to say against it, yet either it takes off none of their trouble or else it returns the next day, for the cause remains in their bodily disease quiet them a hundred times, their fears a hundred more times, returns. Their misery is that what they think they cannot choose but think. You may almost as well persuade a man not to shake in in a fever, or not to feel when he is pained as persuade them to cast away their self-troubling thoughts, or not to think all the enormous confounding thoughts as they do. They cannot get them out of their heads, night or day. Tell them that they must forbear long musings which disturb them, and they cannot. Tell them that they must cast out false imaginations out of their minds when Satan casts them in, and must turn their thoughts to something else. They cannot do it. Their thoughts and troubles and fears are gone out of their power, and the more, by how much the more melancholy and impaired they are. And when they are grown to this, 
Usually, they seem to feel something beside themselves, as it were, speaking of them, and saying this and that to them, and bidding them to do this or that, and they will tell you what it is said to them, and they will hardly believe how much of it is a disease of their own imagination. In this case, they're exceeding prone to think they have revelations, and whatever comes into their minds, they think some revelation brought it there. They used to say, this text of scripture at such a time was set upon my mind, and that text at another time was set on my mind, when off the sense that they took them in was false, or a false application of it made to themselves, and perhaps several texts applied to contrary conclusions, as if one gave them hope, and another contradicted it. And some of them upon this are very prone to prophecies, and they believe that God has foretold them this or that until they see that it comes not to pass, and then they are ashamed. And many of them turn heretics and take up errors in religion, believing truly that God believed them. But such things upon their minds, and some of them that were long troubled, get quietness and joy by such changes of their opinions, thinking that now they are in God's way wish they were out of all this while, and therefore it was that they had no comfort. Of these I have known several persons comforted that have fallen into the clean contrary opinions. Some have turned Catholics and superstitious, and some have run too far from Catholicism, and some have had comfort by turning into Anabaptists, some into Antinomians, some contrarily Arminians, some perfectionists, some Quakers, and some have turned from Christianity itself into infidelity and denied the life to come and have lived in licentious uncleanness. But these melancholy heretics and apostates usually by this cast off their sadness and are not the sort that I have now to deal with. But the sadder, better sort feeling as talk and stir within them, are off apt to be confident that they are possessed by the devil, or at least bewitched, of which I will say more later. And most of them are violently haunted with blasphemous suggestions of ideas, at which they tremble, and yet cannot keep them out of their mind. Either they are tempted and haunted to doubt of the scripture, or Christianity, or the life to come, or to think some ill of God, and oftentimes they are strangely urged, as by something in them, to speak some blasphemous word of God, or to renounce him, and they tremble at the suggestion, and yet it still follows them, and some poor souls yield to it, and say some bad word against God, and then, as soon as it is spoken, something within them says, Now your damnation is sealed, you have sinned against the Holy Ghost, there is no hope. When it is far gone, they are tempted to lay some law upon themselves never to speak more, or not to eat, and some of them have famished themselves to death. When it is far gone, they often think that they have apparitions, and this and that lightness appears to them, especially lights in the night about their beds. And sometimes they are confident that they hear voices and feel something touch or hurt them. They fly from company and can do nothing but sit alone and muse. They cast off all business and will not be brought to any diligent labor in their callings. And when it comes to extremity, they are weary of their lives and strongly followed with temptations to make away with themselves. 
as if something within them were urging them either to drown themselves or cut their own throats or hang themselves or cast themselves headlong, which, alas, too many have done. And if they escape this, when it is ripe, they become quite distracted. These are the doleful symptoms and effects of melancholy, and therefore how desirable is it to prevent them or to be cured while it is but beginning, before they fall into so sad a state. And here it is necessary that I answer the doubt whether such persons be possessed with the devil or not, and how much of all this aforesaid is from him. And I must tell the melancholy person that is sincere, that the knowledge of the devil's agency in his case may be more to his comfort than to his despair. First, we must know what is meant by Satan's possession, either of the body or the soul. It is not merely his local presence and abode in a man that is called his possession, for we know little of that. How far he is more present with a bad man than a good one, but it is his exercising power on a man by such a stated effectual operation. As the Spirit of God is present with the worst, and makes many holy motions to the souls of the impenitent, but he is a settled, powerful agent in the soul of a believer, and so is said to dwell in such, and to possess them by the habit of holiness and love. Even so Satan makes too frequent motions to the faithful, but he possesses only the souls of the ungodly by predominant habits of unbelief and sensuality. And so also he is permitted by God to inflict persecutions and crosses and ordinary diseases on the just. But when he is God's executioner of extraordinary plagues, especially on the head, depriving men of sense and understanding, and working above the bare nature of the disease. This is called possessing them. And as most evil notions on the soul have Satan for their father, and our own hearts as a mother's, so most of many bodily diseases are by Satan, permitted by God, though there be causes of them also in the body itself. And when our own miscarriages and humors and the season, weather and accidents may be the cause, yet Satan may, by these, be a superior cause. And when his operations are such as we call a possession, yet he may work by means and bodily dispositions. And sometimes he works quite above the power of the disease itself. From all this we may learn that for Satan to possess the body is no certain sign of a graceless state, nor will this condemn the soul of any if the soul itself is not possessed. Nay, there are few of God's children, but it is like or sometimes afflicted by Satan, as the executioner of God's correcting them, and sometimes of God's trials, as in the case of Job. Whatsoever some may say to the contrary, it is likely that the prick in the flesh, which was Satan's messenger to buffet Paul, was some such pain as the stone which yet was not removed, that we find after praying three times, but only he had a promise of sufficient grace. Satan's possession of an ungodly soul is a miserable case which is a thousand times worse than his possessing of the body. But every corruption or sin is not such a possession, for no man is perfect without sin. No sin proves Satan's damnable possession of a man but that which he loves more than he hates and which he had rather keep than leave it.
and he willfully keeps it. And this is a manner of great comfort to such melancholy, honest souls, if they were but understanding to receive it, that of all men none love their sin, which they groan under. So little is they, yet it is a heavy burden of their souls. Do you love your unbelief, your fears, your distracted thoughts, your temptations to blaspheme? Had you rather keep them than be delivered from them? The proud man, the ambitious, the fornicator, the drunkard, the gamester, the time-wasting gallants that sit out hours at cards and plays and idle chats, the gluttonous pleasers of the appetite. All these love their sins and would not leave them. Esau sold his birthright for one morsel. They will venture the loss of God, of Christ, and soul, and heaven rather than leave their swinish sin. But is this your case? Do you so love your sad condition? You are weary of it, and heavy laden, and therefore are called to come to Christ for ease. Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29. And it is the devil's way, if he can, to haunt those with troubling temptations whom he cannot overcome with alluring and damning temptations. As he raises storms of persecution against them, without, as soon as they are escaping from his deceits, so does he trouble them within, as far as God permits him. We don't deny, but Satan has a great hand in the case of such melancholy persons. For his temptations cause a sin which God corrects them for. His execution usually is a cause of the distemper of the body. And as a tempter, he is the cause of the sinful and troublesome thoughts and doubts and fears and passions which the melancholy causes. The devil cannot do what he will with us, but what we give him an advantage to do. He cannot break open our doors, but he can enter if we leave them open. He can easily tempt a heavy, phlegmatic body to sloth, a weak and choleric person to anger, a strong and sanguine man to lust, and one of a strong appetite to gluttony or to drunkenness, and vain, sportful youth to idle plays and gaming and voluptuousness, when to others such temptations would have small strength. And so if he can cast you into melancholy, he can easily tempt you to overmuch sorrow and fear, and to distracting doubts and thoughts, and to murmur against God, and to despair, and still think that you are undone, undone, and even the blasphemous thoughts of God, or if it take not this way, than the fanatic conceits of revelation and a prophesying spirit. God will not impute the devil's temptations to you, but to him, be they never so bad, as long as you receive them not by the will, but hate them, nor will he condemn you for those ill effects which are unavoidable from the power of a bodily disease, any more than he will condemn a man for raving thoughts or words in a fever, frenzy, or utter madness. But so far as reason yet hath power, and a will can govern passions, it is your fault if he use not the power, though the difficulty make the fault the less. But what are the more usual causes of depression? Usually other causes go before this disease of melancholy, except in some bodies naturally prone to it. And therefore, before I speak of the cure of it, I will briefly touch them. And one of the most common causes is sinful impatience, discontent, and cares, 
proceeding from a sinful love of some bodily interest, and from a lack of sufficient submission to the will of God and trust in Him, and taking heaven for a satisfying portion. I must necessarily use all these words to show the true nature of this complicated disease of the soul. The names tell you that it is a conjunction of many sins, which in themselves are of no small malignity, and where the predominant bent and habit of heart and life would be the signs of a graceless state, while they are hated, our heavenly portion is more esteemed and chosen and sought than earthly prosperity, the mercy of God through Christ pardons it and will at last deliver us from it. But yet it beseems even a pardoned sinner to know the greatness of a sin that he may not favor it nor be unthankful for forgiveness. I will therefore distinctly open the parts of the sin which brings many into dismal melancholy. It is presupposed that God tries his servants in this life with manifold afflictions, and Christ will have us bear the cross and follow him in submissive patience. Some are tried with painful diseases, and some with wrong by their enemies, and some with the unkindness of friends, and some with forward provoking relatives and company, and some with slanders, and some with persecution, and many with losses, disappointments, and poverty. And here impatience is the beginning of the working of the sinful malady. Our natures are all too regardful of the interest of the flesh, and too weak in bearing heavy burdens, and poverty has those trials which full and wealthy persons that fill them not too little pity, especially in two cases. Number one, when men don't have themselves only, but wives and children in lack, to quiet them. When they are in debt to others, which is a heavy burden to a candid mind, though thievish borrowers make too light of it. In these straits and trials, men are apt to be too sensible and impatient. When they and their families need food and raiment and fire and other necessities to the body, and know not which way to get supply. When landlords and butchers and bakers and other creditors are calling for their debts and they don't have it to pay them, it is hard to keep all this from going too near the heart, and hard to bear it with obedient, quiet submission to God, especially for women whose nature is weaker and liable to too much passion. And this impatience turns to a subtle discontent and unquietness of spirit, which affects the body itself, and lies all day as a load or continual trouble at the heart. And impatience and discontent set the thoughts on the rack with grief and continual cares how to be eased of the troubling cause. They can scarce think of anything else. And these cares often feed upon the heart and are to the mind a consuming fever to the body. And the secret root or cause of all this is the worst part of the sin, which is too much love to the body in this world, where nothing overloved it would have no power to torment us. If ease and health were not overloved, pain and sickness would be the more tolerable. If children and friends were not overloved, the death of them would not overwhelm us with inordinate sorrow. If the body were not overloved, and worldly wealth and prosperity overvalued, it would be easy to endure the hard fare and labor and lack, not only of the superfluities and conveniences, but even of that which is necessary to our health, yea, to life itself, if God will have it so. 
and leads to avoid vexations, discontents, and cares, and inordinate grief and trouble of mind. There is yet more sin in the root of all, and that is, it shows that our wills are yet too selfish and not subdued to a due submission to the will of God, but we would be as gods to ourselves, and be at our own choosing, so we need to have what the flesh desires. We need a due resignation of ourselves and all our concerns to God, live as children in dependence on Him for our daily bread, and not keepers of our own provision. And this shows that we are not sufficiently humbled for our sin, or else we should be thankful for the lowest state, as being much better than that which we deserved. And there is apparently much distrust of God and unbelief in these troubling discontents and cares. Could we trust God as well as ourselves, or as we could trust a faithful friend? Or as a child can trust his father? How quiet would our minds be in the sense of his wisdom, all-sufficiency, and love? And this unbelief yet has a worse effect in worldly trouble. It shows that men take not the love of God and the heaven of glory for their sufficient portion, unless they have what they lack, or would have. For the body in this world, unless they may be free from poverty and crosses and provocations and injuries and pains, all that God has promised them here or hereafter, even everlasting glory, will not satisfy them. And with God and Christ and heaven are not enough to quiet a man's mind, he is in great need of faith, hope, and love which are far greater manners than food and raiment. Another great cause of such trouble of mind is the guilt of some great and willful sin. When conscience is convinced, and yet the soul is not converted, sin is beloved, and yet feared. God's wrath does terrify them, and yet not enough to overcome their sin. Some live in a secret fraud and robbery, and many in drunkenness, and secret fleshly lusts, either self-pollution or fornication. And they know that for such things the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience, and yet the rage of appetite and lust prevails, and they despair and sin. And while the sparks of hell fall on their consciences, it changes neither their heart nor life. There is some more hope of the recovery of these than of a dead-hearted or unbelieving sinner's who work uncleanness with greediness, as being past feeling, and blinded to defend their sins, and plead against holy obedience to God. Brutishness is not so bad as diabolism and malignity, but none of these are the persons spoken of in my text. Their sorrow is not overmuch, but too little, as long as it will not restrain them from their sin. But yet if God convert these persons, the sin which they now live in may possibly hereafter plunge their souls into such depths of sorrow, and the review as may swallow them up. And when men truly converted, yet dally with the bait, and renew the wounds of their consciences by their relapses, it is no wonder if their sorrow and terrors are renewed. Grievous sins have fastened so on the consciences of many as have cast him into incurable melancholy and distraction. But among people that fear God, there is yet another cause of melancholy and of overmuch sorrow, and that is ignorance and mistakes and manner which their peace and comfort are concerned in. I will name some particulars. One is ignorance of the prevailing course of the gospel, 
or covenant of grace, as some libertines called antinomians, more dangerously mistaken to tell men that Christ has repented and believed them, and that they must no more question their faith and repentance than they must question the righteousness of Christ. So many better Christians understand not that the gospel is tidings of unspeakable joy to all that will believe it. Christ and eternal life are offered freely to them that will accept him, and that no sins, however great, or many soever, are accepted from pardon to the soul that unfeignedly turns to God by faith in Christ, and that whoever will may freely take the water of life, and all that are weary and athirst are invited to come to him for ease and rest. And they seem not to understand the conditions of forgiveness, which is but true consent to the pardoning, saving covenant. And many of them are mistaken about the use of sorrow for sin, and about the nature of hardness of heart. They think that if their sorrow be not so passionate as to bring forth tears, and greatly to afflict them, they are not capable of pardon, though they should consent to all the pardoning covenant. And they consider not that it is not our sorrow for itself that God delights in, but it is the taking down of our pride, and that so much humbling sense of sin, danger, and misery, as may make us feel the need of Christ and mercy, and bring us unfeignedly to consent to be his disciples, and to be saved upon his covenant terms. Be sorrow much, or little. If it do this, much, the sinner shall be saved. And as to the length of godly sorrow, some think that the pains of the new birth must be long continued in. Whereas we read in the scripture that by the penitent sinners the gospel was still received speedily with joy, as being the gift of Christ and pardon and everlasting life, humility and loathing must continue and increase. But our first great sorrows may be swallowed up with holy thankfulness and joy. And as for hardness of heart in Scripture, it is taken for such a stiff, rebellious obstinacy as will not be moved from their sins to obedience by any of God's commands or threats. And it's often called an iron sinew, a stiff neck, and so on. But it is never taken for the mere absence of tears or passionate sorrow in a man that is willing to obey. The hard-hearted are the rebellious. Sorrow, even for sin, may be overmuch, and a passionate woman or man may easily grieve and weep for the sin which they will not leave. But obedience cannot be too much. And very many are cast down by ignorance of themselves, not knowing the sincerity which God has given them, Grace is weak and the best of us here, and little and weak grace is not very easily perceived, for it acts weakly and unconstantly, and it is known but by its acts, and weak grace is always joined with too strong corruption, and all sin in the heart and life is contrary to grace and obscures it. And such persons usually have too little knowledge, and are too strange at home, and unskillful in examining and watching their heart and keeping its accounts. And how can any, under all these hindrances, yet keep any full assurance of their own sincerity, if with much ado they get some assurances, neglect of duty or coldness in it, or yielding to temptation, or inconstancy and close obedience will make them question it all again, and they're ready to say it was all but hypocrisy. And a sad and melancholy frame of mind is always apt to conclude the worst and hardly brought to see anything that is good, 
and tends to their comfort. And in such a case, there are too few that know how to fetch comfort from bare probabilities when they don't get certainty, much less from the mere offers of grace and salvation, even when they cannot deny but they are willing to accept of them. And if none should have comfort but those that have assurance of their sincerity and salvation, despair would swallow up the souls of most, even of true believers. An ignorance of other men increases the fears and sorrows of some. They think by our preaching and writing that we are much better than we are, and then they think that they are graceless because they come short of our supposed measures, whereas if they dwelt with us and saw our failings, or knew us as well as we know ourselves, or saw all our sinful thoughts and vicious dispositions written in our foreheads, they would be cured of this error. And unskillful teachers cause the griefs and perplexities of very many. Some cannot open to them clearly the prevailing course of the covenant of grace. Some are themselves unacquainted with any spiritual heavenly consolations. And many have no experience of any inward holiness and renewal by the Holy Ghost, and don't know what sincerity is, or wherein a saint differs from an ungodly sinner. As wicked deceivers make good and bad to differ but a little, if not the best to be taken for the worst, so some unskillful men place sincerity in such things as are not so much as duty, as a papist in their manifold inventions and superstitions. And some unskillfully and unsoundly describe the state of grace and tell you how far a hypocrite may go, so as unjustly discourages and confounds a weaker sort of Christians, and cannot amend the mis-expression of their books or teachers. And too many teachers lay men's comforts, if not salvation, on controversies which are past their reach, and pronounce heresy and damnation against that which they themselves don't understand. Even the Christian world, these 1,300 or 1,200 years, is divided into parties by the teachers, unskillful quarrels about words which they took in several senses. Is it any wonder if the hearers of such are distracted? Well, I've told you the causes of distracted sorrows. I'm now to tell you what is the cure. But alas, it is not so soon done as told. And I shall begin where the disease begins and tell you both what the patient himself must do and what must be done by his friends and teachers. Look on the sinful part of your troubles. Either it's better or worse, and indeed it is. Too many persons in their sufferings and sorrows think they are only to be pitied and take no little notice of the sin that caused them, or that they still continue to commit, and too many unskillful friends and ministers only comfort them, when a round chiding and discovery of their sin should be the better part of the cure, and if they were more sensible how much sin there is, and they're overvaluing the world and not trusting God, and in their hard thoughts of Him, and their poor unholy thoughts of His goodness, and in their undervaluing the heavenly glory which should satisfy them in the most afflicted state, and in their daily impatiences, cares, and discontents, and in denying the mercies or graces received, this would do more to cure some than words of comfort. When they say as Jonah, I do well to be angry, and think that all their denials of grace and distracting sorrows and wrangling against God's love and mercy are their duties, it is time to make them know how great this is a sin. And yet, when as foolishly they think that all these sins are marks of a graceless state, 
and that God will take the devil's temptations for sins and condemn them for that which they abhor and take their very disease of melancholy for a crime. This also needs confutation and reprehension that they may not by error cherish their passions or distress. Particularly, don't give way to a habit of peevish impatience, though it is carnal love to somewhat more than to God and glory, which is the damning sin. Yet impatience must not pass for innocence. Did you not reckon upon sufferings and of bearing the cross when you first gave up yourselves to Christ? And do you think it is strange? Look for it and make it your daily study to prepare for any trial that God may bring to you. And then it will not surprise you and overwhelm you. Prepare for the loss of children and friends, for the loss of good and for poverty and lack. Prepare for slander, injuries, or poison, for sickness, pain, and death. It is your unpreparedness that makes it seem insufferable. And remember that it is but a vile body that suffers, which you always knew must suffer death, and rot in the dust. And whoever is the instrument of your sufferings, it is God that tries you by it. And when you think that you are only displeased with men, you are not guiltless of murmuring against God, or else his overruling hand would persuade you to submissive patience. Especially make conscience of a settled discontent of mind. Have you not yet much better than you deserve? And do you forget how many years you have enjoyed undeserving mercy? Discontent is a continued resistance of God's disposing will, that I say not some rebellion against it. Your own wills rise up against the will of God. It is atheistical to think that your sufferings are not by his providence. And dare you repine against God and continue in such repining? Whom else does it belong to dispose of you in all the world? And when you feel distracting cares for your deliverances, remember that this is not trusting God. Care for your own duty and obey his command, but leave it to him what you shall have. Tormenting cares, but add to your afflictions. It is a great mercy of God that he forbids you these cares and promises to care for you. Your Savior has largely, though gently, reprehended them and told you how sinful and profitable they are and that your Father knows what you need. And if he deny it you, it is for just cause. And if it be to correct you, it is yet to profit you. And if you submit to him and accept his gift, he will give you much better than he takes from you, even Christ and everlasting life. Set yourself more diligently than ever to overcome the inordinate love of the world. It will be a happy use of all your troubles if you can follow them up to the fountain and find out what it is that you cannot bear the absence or loss of, and consequently what it is that you overlove. God is very jealous, even when he loves, against every idol that is loved too much, and with any of that love which is due to him. And if he take them all away and tear them out of our own hands and hearts, it is merciful as well as just. I speak not this to those that are troubled only for need of more faith and holiness and communion with God and assurance of salvation. These troubles might give them much comfort if they understood aright from whence they come and what they signify. For as impatient trouble under worldly crosses prove that a man loves the world too much, so impatient trouble for need of more holiness and communion with God shows that such are lovers of holiness and of God. Love goes before desire and grief. That which men love, they delight in, 
if they have it, and mourn for the absence of it, and desire to obtain it. The will is the love, and no man is troubled for lack of that, which he would not have. But the most common cause of passionate melancholy is at first some worldly discontent and care, either hardship or crosses or the fear of suffering, or the unsuitableness and provocation of some related to them, or disgrace or contempt, cast them into passionate discontent, and self-will cannot bear the denial of something which they would have. And then when the discontent has muddied and diseased a man's mind, temptations about his soul do come in afterwards, and that which begun only with worldly crosses does after seem to be all about religion, conscience, or merely for sin and lack of grace. Why could you not patiently bear the words, the wrongs, the losses, the crosses that befall you, make so great a manner of these bodily transitory things? Is it not because you overlove them? Were you not in good earnest when you called them vanity and covenanted to leave them to the will of God? Would you have God let you alone in so great a sin as the love of the world, or giving any of his due to creatures? If God should not teach you what to love and what to set light by, and cure you of so dangerous a disease as a fleshly, earthly mind, he should not sanctify you and fit you for heaven. Souls go not to heaven as an arrow is shot upward, against their inclination, but as fire naturally tends upward, and the earth downward, to their like. So when holy men are dead, their souls have a natural inclination upward, and it is their love that is their inclination. They love God and heaven and holy company, and their old godly friends and holy works, even mutual love and the joyful praises of Jehovah. And the spirit of love is as a fiery nature which carries them heavenward, and angels convey them not there by force, but conduct them as a bride to her marriage who is carried all the way by love. What I have read here is just the first part of this sermon. Thank you for your attention to this recording.